Today's interview was just such a privilege to capture. Lord John Bird has the most incredible story from poverty-stricken childhood to founding and building a phenomenal social enterprise that continues to change the world for those who find themselves homeless. I was nervous before starting this interview because John has such a huge and incredible story to tell. I wanted to make sure that I did him and his story justice. But I needn't have worried. He was so outgoing, funny and just a brilliant storyteller. Sometimes you just need to be reminded that business and the way that we live our lives should be simple. John's interview will stay with me as a guiding light throughout my career. I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. I'm the founder of Not On The High Street and Holly & Co. And I'm the UK ambassador of creative small businesses. I believe that having a business, doing what you love, is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. And my dream is to help everybody start theirs. So I've reached out to all my favourite small businesses, acclaimed entrepreneurs and those who just simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to our sponsor, NatWest, who have helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown. Wow, John, we've only had one Lord on this podcast so far, and that was Lord Billamoria. So it's a pleasure to welcome our second Lord. We recently also spoke to Dr. Sabrina Hatton, who was one of your most inspiring Big Issue vendors. When she spoke about you, it was just absolutely obvious you were my number one guest that I wanted to speak to. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Well, first of all, we're currently 10 weeks into lockdown um, here in the UK, and I'm recording this series remotely from my desk. How are you keeping at the moment? Um, It's been incredibly easy for me. It's an incredible tragedy because about 10 minutes from here is a hospital where people are working overtime. It's terrible to think uh, of what's actually happening in the lives of people. Thank God that it's um, reducing. Uh, yeah. And hopefully it would reduce even more. But I have had um, in, uh, an enormous amount of time to reflect on what I want to do. Uh, I have not been unbusy. In fact, what's terrible about lockdown is people know where you are. When you're in the House of Lords, <laughs> you could be in one of a number of a dozen different places chit-chatting. I love talking to staff. I love talking to coppers. I love talking to everybody, to be honest. Um, but here, you're on the phone. I mean, one's on the Zoom or whatever it is, all the time. It's, it's terrible. But um, occasionally, one is asked to do something which one wants to do, which is about the propagation of business that has social meaning. And that's my mm-hmm. great uh, passion. We always start this um, podcast, John, with a bit about your backstory and someone's backstory, where they began and what a story yours is. Uh, You had a very difficult time growing up. You were born uh, poverty-stricken circumstances, growing up in what you describe as a slum in Notting Hill. What are your earliest memories of childhood and life growing up? Well, um, it's very interesting. It was a slum, but I mean, if you're born in a shoebox on the M1, that's all you know. Uh, mm. If you're born in a slum, that's all you know. I it was a, a time of enormous happiness for me because my dad was uh, he was a milkman and he worked round the corner, uh, and he would always be home at like three in the afternoon. Uh, my mum was a barmaid, but she was bringing us up. Uh, the street was full of incredible characters, poor, rough as whatever. They all looked out for you. There was loads of dogs and cats, so there was lots of nature. There were no trees, but it was it was almost as though we were in a little village in Ireland, which is where my mother came from. Um, so I, I, I feel in a way, ever since then, I've been exiled from the slums of Notting Hill. Um, but it was the happiest time of my life. Unfortunately, at the age of five, my mum and dad were 
heavy drinkers and they smoked cigarettes and they didn't have much money. Uh, and we ended up being made homeless when I was five. And then we were put in a void in my grandmother's flat. Uh, and it was that was awful because my, gr- my mother was Irish. My father was brought up as a Protestant. And my grandmother didn't like Catholics. So there was, it was horrible the way that my grandmother talked to my mother. I didn't like it at all. I was five. Uh, and it was like an ideological fight. And my grandmother was uh, very hard on my mother. And I, I found that very difficult. And I suppose it, in a way, turned me into a mother's boy, uh, which I have remained uh, ever since then. I had five brothers and I was the... I was the girl in the family, so to speak. I was the carer. Um, and I looked out for my mum. And um, I think it was largely because my grandmother was such an arsehole. Excuse my French. Well, no, your <laughs> French is allowed. And it, it sounds like that. And, you know, not only did you have that beginning, it actually seemed to get um, slightly worse as you went into an orphanage. Is that right? Between the ages of seven and 10. You spoke about your sort of affinity with women and and caring and that caring nature. What sort of effect do you think that this early life experience has had on you? Well, the orphanage was full of very, very tough Catholics from the west coast of Ireland who had, you know, maybe a couple of hundred really screwed up London Irish boys and girls who were there because families had broken up or because they'd been made physically orphans. Um, so it was a very hard life for them, and they devoted themselves to the well-being of us. Um, so there wasn't much love around um, mm. because they had to keep us clean. They had to stop us running away. They had to stop us fighting with each other. They had to make sure we ate. They may had to make sure that we went to bed, washed ourselves. So it was a very – I mean, it was like 24-7 for them. And it's only later that you realise, God, would you want 200 seriously disturbed children? Um, and, you know, people complain they didn't get enough love. Um, I'm actually writing about one of them, Sister Ursula, who did what she could. But every now and then she'd give you a quick flick of the of the stick because you'd poodled around. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm really, I've learned an awful lot um, over the years about, authority figures are often there because they're just having to keep the show on the road. And so along with that sort of experience of protecting your mother or feeling that sort of empathy with your mother, do you think that that time upon the, uh, within the orphanage, you also got a, I don't know, an empathy for authoritative figures in your life or for how other people see authority? Oh, no, it was the exact opposite. I did everything oh. possible I could. I was—I had two older brothers who regularly beat me up because there was three of us went into one orphanage, another one in, went into another orphanage, and another one went into another orphanage. And my brothers beat me up because I would not play the game. I was always stirring it up and mm. truculent, and I was the little one. Um, and I ran away, and I did everything wrong. It's only in reflection I realised what a tough life. And I met Sister Bridie, who was one of them. Uh, I met her in The Passage, which was a homeless project that I was involved in in Victoria 40 years later. And she said she remembered me as a very troubled little boy. I don't know if she did, but it sounded good. Um, but so what I found so difficult about being in that place was the amount of bullies there were Mm. who bullied the smallest. And I got this kind of idea that, you know, you uh, it, it was quite normal in society for the weak to be picked on by the poor. I mean, for but the weak being picked on by the strong. So the poor would be kicked around and stuff like that. So I think that's where I thought, hang on, this is a bit perverse, mm. this. So I would side with people and throughout my institutional life because I then went into other kinds of institutions um, I I did my best to stand up to uh, you know bullies and I really dislike them I'd ship them to an island for the next 50 years sorry forgive me 
I'm very draconian. <laughs> I, I I welcome it. I welcome it. And I'm sure many, many listeners would agree with you. You left the orphanage and I read you became a butcher's boy. Is that right? Well, we left the orphanage when I was 10. And then we we moved to a council flat, which was like a, oh, it was unbelievable. It had its own toilet. So we didn't have to share it with 10 other families. Um, there was a, There was a kitchen with a kettle. There was a bathroom. So we had a bath every week, which I don't think I'd ever had a bath until I went into the orphanage. And, you know, it was another heaven. The unfortunate thing was for me was I hated life. I hated, I felt I'd become quite disturbed. So I went shoplifting, breaking into houses, uh, doing all sorts of stuff like that. And then I got a job as a butcher's boy, and I loved it. Unfortunately, uh, the guy who ran it told my mother I was the laziest little Irish boy he'd ever met, because he was Irish. And he said, oh, you know, uh, call, you call yourself Irish. The Irish know how to work, and your little boy doesn't, and that kind of stuff. So I got thrown out of there. Then I got delivering paraffin. I loved that. But if I wasn't working, I was getting into trouble. And then mm-hmm. I was getting done for shoplifting, even though I was I was out on the pavement. I wasn't in the shop shoplifting. I've never done any shoplifting. Uh, um, and I got done. I got five years probation, a temp of fine. And there was this kind of feeling then that if you were working class, the middle classes and everybody else, they could say what they liked. But if you said, I'm innocent, they would just tell you to shut up. And so I went to court at the age of 10 for a crime I didn't do. I can't actually quite believe when you're speaking how much she had gone through. I'm perfect now. (laughs) (laughs) But you're talking about a 10-year-old. It's quite unbelievable. Now, having done my research on you, you know, I know that you struggled at school as well, didn't you? Through that, though, and obviously you've got that background, you know, every day you went to school, what you left in your home life, obviously now we're much more educated, aren't we? We understand the effects of our home life on education. Did you start to see any early passions in that schooling? Uh, There was a number of things I got really interested in. Uh, One of them was current affairs because we had a teacher called Miss Peck, a very strange lady uh, who did look like a wood or something like that and uh, she had the right name for it and she told us everything about bombs and the holocaust she told us about the holocaust that was absolutely she was you know i don't think she liked the germans but um and she was a good catholic uh kind of nun type person so she told us about that she told us about south america she told us about wonderful stuff and i thought it was fascinating uh, but the problem was there was loads of stuff to read and I couldn't read properly. I I have kind of borderline dyslexia, which is by practice you get rid of it. But it, it's not it's not life-threatening. Uh, you can get around it. Um, but the problem is it takes you to longer to read. So I could kind of read, but I couldn't quite understand. So I'd read a paragraph and and then at the end of it not know the meaning of it. So um, it was difficult. And, of course, then schools were Mm. very authoritarian. Everybody was beaten. I was always getting the cane because I would hit somebody. And if ever I hit anybody, there would be a teacher watching. Now, I would only hit them because they'd hit me. I was always the little victim who looked like the bully or whatever. In the end, I was such a pain in the rear that they told me not to go to school. They filled in the register for me so that the school board, who was government department, would come round and and take you to court if you didn't go to school. So it was like that. And every now and then I get nicked for housebreaking, stealing bikes. um, And the old bill would come along and they'd they'd decide what you'd done, you know, because there weren't many – we were living in Fulham Broadway – uh, there weren't many families who they could say, oh, well, we'll go and nick him. And coppers were, could be quite lazy, like the rest of us. And, they'd, you know, they'd give you a kick in and you'd admit to anything, you know. 
the story you're telling me, I can't quite believe this all has to be turned into a movie. I mean, I we have we've only got to quarter of the way through your life, and it's already well, epic. They they're put they're making a film called Mary Poppins Three. It's about me. Sorry. Oh Jesus! Here we are. Bloody. Sorry. Forgive me. We are all doing this remotely, so we're all uh, balancing microphones and books. laptops and books on our laps. Um, so you were in and out of prison, but you turned this around because is it right that you learned to read in prison? Yeah. Well, I've never been into serious prison because I was like a lot of youngsters by the time they got to their kind of mid-twenties, sorted themselves out. So I was in and out of boys' prisons, and I was in and out of reformatory. I was in and out of, I did a short, sharp shock boot camp, uh, detention centre. I always like to tell the story how I, um, sometimes I talk to the students at Oxford University at the union there, and I always say, you know, when I was 14, I I came to Cambridge, uh, Oxford, for the first time. And I arrived at um, the, I arrived at Oxford Station in handcuffs, and I wasn't going to an S and M party. I was going to Oxford Detention Centre, which was. <laughs> uh, so I tell them those kind of silly stories. But I was there in a, a detention centre, uh, which was the may the maddest thing you'd ever do to a boy or a girl of that age, which is you would beat wrongdoing out of them. You'd kick and spit on them and stamp on them. Uh, That didn't work. Um, But when I was in another uh, boys' prison, because I'd been in a reformatory, run away, stolen a car, smashed it up, and here I was, just short of my 16th birthday, and I met a screw, and he was uh, a kind of dark-looking chap, maybe Indian, and, of course, we didn't talk to Indians, we didn't talk to black people, we didn't talk to Jews, and we tried our best not to talk to Protestants, <laughs> which is very difficult in England. Uh, so, uh, you know, you carried all this kind of racism around in you. And this bloke, this screw, said, do you want a book, boy? And I went, um, uh, and I paused, and he said, oh, you can't read. And I said, I can read. And like a lot of people, I could read the big words. But I couldn't, hear, I couldn't understand the little words, which are the meaning of the sentence. So that's why... I would read a whole page and not understand it. Mm. And this screw gave me a pencil and a book, and he said to me, I'll come back in three days, just underline all the words you didn't uh, you didn't understand. And, of course, they're all those silly little words, there, there, and all them. And um, he transformed me. I, I was transformed by somebody who my own mother would have called some low life. So, anyway... So there was a number of challenges. Um, I was fortunate at that stage of deciding that I would never work for a living. I would never get a job because I, I was incapable of accepting the authority of work. So even at that early age, I was thinking to myself, well, I'm either going to be a thief, and I'm not very good at that, as it's proved. So I started thinking about business. And one of the areas of business I loved was printing and publishing. And I thought, one day I'll print books and magazines and I'll, you know, and I'll be able to write for them as well because I'll be able to tell stories. So, and that and was... It, isn't that quite ironic, though? There you are, suffering with dyslexia, you know, and yet the other profession you wanted to go for was publishing and using words. And did it not scare you? It feels like you had an what we would now say quite an entrepreneurial spirit, someone that wasn't going to accept no for an answer. You know, you were just going to go for it. Were you quite determined? Uh, well, these are labels that I don't think you give yourself. You just get on with it. I, of course. I have never, ever. I walked out of Pendenville Prison once with a, with a social worker who was running a, a group there, and I just entertained about 250 men. And I just told them uh, that they'd got it all wrong and that they should follow my example and get themselves something to be passionate about. It doesn't matter what it is. And I used humour and all that. I insulted them. I told them they were a lazy load of sods and all that. And I came out and the woman said to me, "Uh, Mr. Bird, it's um, so wonderful. How did you get rid of your low self-esteem? And I turned to her and I said, what low self-esteem? Because the worst thing, or the best thing, sometimes about poverty, 
is it throws up these people who really do believe the sun shines out of their derriere. And I was one of them. I was totally convinced that even though I was the thickest on the block in terms of education, there was no way they were better than me. I've never met anybody who I thought more of than I thought of myself. And that includes the Pope, who I met a couple of years ago. Want to win a one-to-one 90-minute mentoring session with me? Well, thanks to NatWest, you can. All you need to do is sign up to the NatWest Business Builder using our code to be in with a chance. The Business Builder is an entirely free e-learning site packed full of information and advice, covering everything from well-being to finance. Head to natwestbusinesshub.com forward slash Holly Tucker to find out all the details. Now, as you know, each week we run a competition with NatWest who, in a world first, give away their ad break space to small businesses and independents. They truly believe in the power of small and want to give you the opportunity to showcase your brilliant businesses to hundreds and thousands of listeners. So without further ado, let me hand over to this week's NatWest independent ad break winner. What's in a name? Cub and Pudding. I knew it would be the name of my business long before I had any clue what the business would be. It was the nicknames of my baby bumps and it has become more life-changing than motherhood already is. Rewind two years ago, I was bored stiff in an unfulfilling corporate job longing for some creative magic. Enter kidswear. If you've got kids, this might sound familiar. My eldest is a boy and boys' clothes tend to go a bit digger dinosaur navy brown after that cutesy toddler age. So I figured I'd design for him myself. And for his sister. So I launched my own unisex kidswear line. I resigned from that boring job and took the leap. Now I'm my own boss. My business means freedom, choices, and now the thrill of my kids seeing what I enjoy doing day to day. Find me at www.cubandpudding.com. If you'd like to take NatWest up on their generosity and be listened to by thousands of people, we've created more information on exactly what we're looking for on our website, holly.co. So tell me, you then found, as well, as we might say, entrepreneurial spirit, or you have a high self-esteem of yourself, um, and you were interested in publishing. And then there was this great moment in your life, and I know I'm skipping parts of it, but we only have an hour. So I want to jump into this wonderful moment in your life when you met Gordon Roddick, um, husband to my absolute heroine, Anita Roddick, the founders of The Body Shop. Can you do us the honour of telling us this great story of how you met and how this led you into founding The Big Issue? I was 21. I'd been married for a few years. I did the typical thing where you marry your pregnant girlfriends. Uh, So I was married. Uh, My wife threw me out because I wouldn't work and I was always bringing home stolen goods and having people around drinking through the night. I was on social security. Uh, fiddling that um then they i then she left me uh then the police were after me for various things and uh in the end i ran off to paris i met a marxist engelist leninist trotskyist revolutionary girl beautiful girl i became enamored with her and i stopped being a person who believed that black people and jews and indians and english people were inferior I got rid of all my racism and all my thing, largely through sexual opportunism, but then it changed completely. I mean, and that, I think that's wonderful. I mean, I, I'm talking about as though I'm really in love with myself, but I am in love with the human spirit where you start doing things for very mean-spirited ways, and then before you know it, you're doing it because you you mean it. Uh, and so what happened to me was I um, I became a Marxist, and then I went to Edinburgh to see my ex-wife, and there I met Gordon in a pub, and he was a right-wing geezer, you know, public school boy and all that stuff. And I met him, and he became a mate of mine, and I think it's the kind of – I was teaching myself how to read and write in a way or be posh. I wanted to be posh, get in the middle classes. They're lovely. Um 
And we became mates. He asked me to come down and see his new girlfriend in 1968. I went to see her. She was very, very kind to me for half an hour. And then she called me a fat-ass revolutionary. This was at the time when I was gorgeous. Uh, absolutely lovely. I, I looked like I looked like Russell Brand at the time. I'm not joking. <laughs> but then we all looked like Russell Brand then, even the women. <laughs> anyway, uh, so, I, so she then started telling me she'd been to South America and met some real revolutionaries. And would I throw my life away for the revolution? Anyway, she slagged me off and she tore into me. And we just started fighting. And Gordon loved it. Uh, and and then I didn't see them for 20 years. And then I saw they they were with, they were on a program 20 years later, a TV program with uh, Richard Branson. And they just launched a, uh, what was it called? It was called Mates, which was a condom company for people who don't like sex. That's as far as I can understand. I don't know what it was. It was something about it. There was something, I think it was maybe biodegradable or something like that. Or, but it was a, a socially useful company, you know. And they're all in it together. And I saw them on the telly. And I rang Gordon the next day. And I didn't know he'd, him and his wife had been running the body shop for 12 years. And they were multimillionaires. So I went to see Gordon. And Gordon said to me after a half an hour of very strained talk, he said, are you one of those kind of persons who climbs out of the woodwork to come and see someone when they made a shed load of money? I said, yes. And he said, at least I know where you're coming from. <laughs> and we became mates and we stayed mates. He went to New York. He saw somebody selling a street paper called Street News. He brought, he brought the idea back to England, got his foundation, the Body Shop Foundation, to do a um, feasibility study. And it proved it wouldn't work. And then in 1991, he asked me, would I look at the possibility of doing a street paper? Why? Because I'd been homeless. I was an ex-offender. I'd been a heavy drinker. I'd used drugs in the street. I'd been arrested. I was a scumbag. And they wouldn't walk all over me. And I would not have any illusions in them. And I thought, yeah. And we're not giving them anything. We were not giving them any handouts. We were going to give them the means of making their own money. So it was a hand up, not a handout. Exactly what the butchers had done to me to stop me getting into crime. These people gave me the chance of not being an arsehole. So I was very pleased. Gosh, I mean, he sounds like uh, quite a wonderful guy to have seen that connection. Um, a few entrepreneurs, actually, it makes me think about this, have described these certain people that come into your life during your business journey or life um, as guardian angels. And it, it feels like he was definitely one for you. Um, you launched The Big Issue in 1991. Um, how did the idea come about um, of the name Firstly, and also that that model, you know, because as you said, the the, the model in New York didn't work because um, no. because actually this is really really before its time. Um, the social enterprise, the entire, you know, and now this is definitely something that we, you know, people study at school. So could you just tell us about the name and the model because it's a fascinating story of how it began. So I did a feasibility study for Gordon. And what I went, I did, I call it a Nelsonian. Um, you know, Nelson was asked to, he said, my Lord, all those, there's all those French ships there and they're going to destroy us. So he put a telescope up to his bad eye and he said, what French? You know, what he was really saying was he was only going to see what he wanted to see. He just wanted to go. So I did a Nelsonian feasibility study and I just went <laughs> round. And if anybody said something nice, about the idea of building a street paper or starting a street paper, I wrote it down. By the time I presented this uh, feasibility study to Gordon, he said, oh, it really looks good, doesn't it? I said, brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> and you reckon it's going to cost £30,000? Yeah, yeah, well, that's cheap. I mean, everybody else is talking about hundreds of thousands. Oh, we don't have to do that. I mean, and you're saying all these homeless, oh, yeah, they all... <laughs> 
and, and all I was doing was looking for a job. I, I, yeah. I wanted a hand up. Um, I said to him, well, I want to call it the big issue. And he said, no, no, that's just a cliche. I told Anita, she said, you're no good at names. You know, that's the big issue. We found out it was a cliche even more when we launched and we had a press agent and they'd give us clippings of every reference to the big issue. And it was like, oh, you know, uh, worms in the soil is a big issue. Uh, or, oh, yeah, <laughs> we got all these, we got this, uh, yeah, Gibraltar's uh, baboons or whatever they are. Oh, that's a big issue and all that stuff. But it was brilliant. Now everybody knows the big issue is the big yeah. issue. And yeah. it is everywhere. We are like the red telephone boxes. But yeah. So we came up with that name. The idea that Gordon and I were very determined we would never, ever give anybody something for nothing because the state was doing that. There were 501 homeless organisations in London alone giving out, I mean, something for nothing. And that, that wasn't getting anybody anywhere. That wasn't sorting their problems out. That wasn't getting them out of crime or whatever. So, um, and also it was saying to somebody, don't you worry, we'll look after you. Now, if I was to come around your house and say, don't you worry, I'm going to look after you, within a very short space of time, you'd become useless. Mm. You're useless to yourself. Mm. So anyway, uh, that was really how it was. And we always, the model, we didn't take the American model. The American model, because uh, I knew people in America, and I said, do you get the street news? I said, well, we, we don't see it very often now. But whenever we see it, we, we run the other way because all the all the articles are full of oh, homelessness, oh. and it was all written by homeless people. And once you'd read two of them, you'd never want to read them again. They were yep. so depressing. And there is a place for that kind of writing, but it's not every month or every week or every fortnight. So we changed the model. Uh, we had we uh, we gave everybody a code of conduct. We signed the code of conduct. So we said, look, this is what we're going to do for you, and this is what you've got to do for us, and you've got to do for yourself. So it was a contract between equals. Uh, we said, we are wholesalers, you are retailers. So whatever you do with your money, whatever records you keep, you have to look after yourself. We're not giving you anything. We're just giving you the marketplace with a product. And, and we're going to go 50-50 with you. So we went 50-50 with the homeless. Yeah. It's just an amazing thing to think that this was that long ago. And am I right in thinking, like many small businesses, when you start up, you're just winging it on a constant basis. And I know that you, um, at those early, early days, you nearly went bankrupt, didn't you? And it was, it was, was it right in losing 25,000 a month in the early days? Yeah, well, the problem was, <clears throat> never listen to the clever. I'm not joking. We our business model was based on the simple thing. And this was what the sector said. Oh, you won't make any money out of your street sales. You'll only make money out of advertising because they were talking about the Times or Vogue right. or whatever. yes. So he said, okay, well, so we'll make it really cheap. We'll sell it to, for 10p to the vendors so they don't have to pay anything, really. And we get all the money from the advertising. And... So many of the major advertisers, friends of, the, of Anita and Gordon, oh, yes, count us in. Mm -hmm. What I didn't realise is that advertisers are agents and they go to their clients and say, would you like to be in this? Would you like to be in that? They are, they're not buying ads themselves. They're buying it on behalf of the – and the companies, Unilever and all the others, uh, the big ones, you know, Branson stuff, Virgin. They also know through their agents, they said, oh, yeah, we'll get them. We never got one of them. So the moment we started, we lost money. So when by Christmas we were selling 100,000 copies, this is three months after long, we were losing 12, 13, 15,000 pounds a month. It got up to 25,000 because we were so brilliantly accepted by the public and the vendors. 
And then one day in June 1992, we'd been running for about 10 months. He said, John, I'm losing, I'm giving you £25,000 a month. You said it was going to cost £30,000 to bring it to fruition and profit. You know, I've spent £300,000 on you rather than thirty. And I said to him, well, what's an all amongst mates? And he told me to piss off. He said, you've got three months. In three months, if you haven't sorted out. That would be the end. That would be, so I loved the challenge. I thought, wow, yeah. So I thought, I know what I'm going to do. There's a, there was about 25 staff. So I went back and I said to 10 of them, half of those were, you know, on part-time or whatever. They were students who were going to go to the college anyway. Um, so I reduced the staff. I uh, I took the paper from an A3 to an A4, got rid of the printer and got another printer, turned it from 10p to 20p to the vendors, and uh, doubled the circulation, sorry, the occurrence, from a monthly to a fortnightly, and said to the editorial staff, I'm sorry, from now on, you just have to work twice as hard. Otherwise, you there's the door. And in those days, you could say those kind of things and you wouldn't have somebody all over you. And it worked. And it worked. Your first birthday, was it, that you turned to profit? On the first birthday, September 1992, we made a profit of £1,500. And the the body shop never had to give us another penny. Mm. Um, and it was so brilliant. You were talking about Gordon. Gordon is a awkward Scotsman. He's a pain in the ass. I love that guy. Gordon said, look, he'll get the job going because he's a he's a rude, ruthless person and he doesn't mind working through the night. So all the things which were great compliments to me were coming from a man who was the first person I thought, wow, he knows what he's talking about. He believes in me more than I believe in me. I thought it would last six months, maybe a year. And here we are, 29 years later. We've teamed up with our friends at Three and all year we'll be working together to make business dreams come true. Share your dreams on social using hashtag Holly and Co Dreamer and who knows what will come true. With Three Means Business Plan, I love that you can get up to £500 worth of benefits from their specialist partners to help give your business a helping hand. Whether you need support with accounting or building a new website, Three have got you covered. Now over to a short story about those that dreamt big and flew. Maya Angelou is one of America's most beloved and celebrated poets and authors, with dozens of awards and over 50 honorary degrees. But her early years in life were not easy. Having lived through extremely traumatic childhood experiences, Maya was frightened by the power of her own voice and chose not to speak for five years. It was only when she was introduced to the literary greats as well as brilliant black female artists that her imagination was set alight and Maya found her speech again. This set the stage for the extraordinary life Maya would lead, from nightclub dancer to writer, composer, director and actress to name just a few professions. But it was her purpose, her belief in sharing her experiences through her creativity, be it through plays, books, poetry or music that would define her legacy. Active in the civil rights movement, working closely with both Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, Maya's most celebrated work, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, was among the first autobiographies by a 20th century black woman to reach a wide general readership. It was her determination to share her personal experiences through her creativity and share it with the world, which resulted in President Barack Obama honouring her with the Presidential Medal of Freedom, one of the country's highest honours. There is no better way to sum up Maya than using her own words. I am a woman phenomenally. Phenomenal woman, that's me. Don't forget to share your own business dream using hashtag Holly and Co Dreamer. 
To discover more about Three's business plans, search Three Means Business. Now back to Conversations of Inspiration. Tell me, I, I'm sure everyone says this to you, um, but we all know, don't we, this sort of famous phrase, everyone is a few paychecks away from being homeless themselves and life circumstances can suddenly change and you don't have the support of your family. And I mentioned at the beginning of this interview, I interviewed Sabrina Cohen-Hatton a few months ago and she ended up homeless from a young age because her father died suddenly and her mother became unwell. And she spoke about the big issue fundamentally changing her life as it gave her this income. Uh, It gave her an ability to rent her first place, which then allowed us her to have a fixed address, which allowed her to apply to the fire services. And now she's gone on to being one of the most senior, successful women in the force. Did you start to see uh, the world of homelessness or an attitude from people dealing with homelessness change from the offset? Or has it taken, you know, the 30 years to actually have it ingrained in, you know, the people who walk past homelessness. And actually now the big issue has been that sort of connection, the connection that always needed to occur for us to treat the treat people in these circumstances um, as human. About three months after we started, there was this enormous vendor. I mean, he was about six foot six. And he was a complete pain. But when he started selling, I mean, he started with great arrogance and hated everybody. But after a period of time, he started to quieten down and all that. One day I was going to go and see him to really tell him off and say, look, you know, you've got to pull your socks up, otherwise you're out the door. And I saw a copper go up to him and I thought, oh, Jesus, I'm going to bless myself here. I thought he's going to whack him or something and the copper went up and gave him a a coffee with a donut and they started talking as though they were mates I thought this is extraordinary so I just stood back then the copper walked on and I went after the copper and I said hello there I said my name is John Bird founded the big issue and he said oh brilliant and he shook my hand I said I just saw you two talking to that vendor of ours he said, yeah, he said, oh, God, he was such an arsehole. He was a bully. He was a shoplifter. He'd go into shops and he'd say, nick me. And he said, you have given him a purpose. You've given him a direction. He he is polite and he knows. And he even started singing because he had a great voice. And he would be out there singing, please come and buy the biggest shoe. Uh, it's not a piece of toilet tissue and all that sort of stuff. So he'd go on like that. That was the first time I saw that. And homeless people were known and notorious for being, nobody ever looked at them, nobody ever spoke to them, except to say, here's some money, because they were begging. When they were begging, they were always saying, they were always exaggerating how bad things were. Now there were people saying, oh, things are really going well because I'm doing the big issue. And they sold more copies when they didn't sell tragedies, when they didn't tell uh, strategy stories. So it was very, very interesting. Then later on, you get a letter. I got a letter probably 10 years in when this uh, bloke said to me, "I thank you very much. I've just graduated. This is unbelievable. I've just graduated and I'm at St. Thomas's Hospital. And if you ever want to come and see me, please do. He said, my mum and dad sold the big issue and they went from being stupidly drunk to drunk, but still working, working drunks. And he said that enabled me to do my levels and all that stuff. I thought that was brilliant. Gosh. And I wish we'd collected these letters and we don't, we never have. We've never oh. been good at blowing our own trumpet, but talking about, Sabrina, I was on a t- I was on a program. Uh, she walked up to me and she just embraced me. And being embraced by a very beautiful young woman at my age is very rare. <laughs> she is uh, so beautiful. <laughs> and and she said thank you very much, and she was crying. 
Yeah. Unbelievable. She is, well, anyone who's listening, do listen also to Sabrina's podcast. Um, Nowadays, we talk more and more about the sort of changing world of business, you know, a world where it's less money orientated or greedy or corporate machinery. And with its sort of mercenary leaders into one where we're sort of entering a new era, I would say, for ethical, altruistic businesses. Um, many people are looking about how they can help the planet, how can, how can they treat their staff better, how they can treat their suppliers better, and the triple bottom line, and basically making business a force for good. Now, you were right there at the beginning, so was the body shop. Um, you were sort of a godfather of social enterprise. Can you Tell us anything that we should know, things that you have learned over the last 30 years with the big issue. What I learned is social business is good for everybody. It's good for you because if you're in business, you're always precariously trying to look after the bottom line. Um, And you feel, I think most of the people I know who do social businesses sleep easy at night. And I know Mm. a lot of people who don't. I remember um, Superdrug called me into their office once and the guy who was running it said, you know what, this was in the early days, he said, you know what, we do more nun testing on animals and more nun sweatshops than the body shop. We're much better at it as Superdrug. I said, well, congratulations. I'm glad you're doing it. And they said, yeah, so why aren't we, whatever, uh, you know, considered the ultimate? I said, well, I don't know. And then I said, but why are you doing it? He said, oh, it's our customers. I said, what do you mean your customers? Well, the customers demand this, don't they? they they're more likely to buy if they feel that there's a kind of positive echo. So I said, oh, I said, so so how did that, you know, who developed that market? And silence fell and he went, the body shop. But that is the thing. The bottom line is stronger and more resilient and will last longer and your kids will be proud of you and your grandchildren and your aunts and your uncles. So it's a kind of feel-good factor. I think what the COVID-19 thing is all about, really, is remembering once again how human we are. Yes, I couldn't agree more. I, I have been absolutely astonished. I'm living in a village near Cambridge, and I'm a healthy 74-year-old, always out on his bike and walking I've had people come here and give me vegetables. I've had to tell them to piss off. I said, I've got too many vegetables. <laughs> but but absolutely committed. There's people in our village who are looking out for the old. Uh, it's just so wonderful. And I, I think after the COVID-19 thing is over, we got to cash in on that. And it will be difficult for a while because it might be difficult to make a profit in this circumstance. There's going to be a lot of people who will be looking for our help. But if we can keep that beautiful thing that happened then and the beautiful thing that happened that has grown out of the body shop. Mm. Um, I'll tell you another story. Um, I was at a a conference when Ben and Jerry's had just sold out to Unilever. And it was a load of these kind of, it was in America. These really right-arm American, you know, you know, really hippie type business people. I tend to agree with Johnny Rotten, never trust a hippie. <laughs> anyway, uh, so Ben Cohen, who started Ben and Jerry's, was up there on the stage crying because he'd had to sell out because of his partner or whatever. And everybody was saying, oh, it's terrible and all that. And some people were angry and all that. And I stood up and I said, can I just give a different view of this? I'm really glad you sold to Unilever because Unilever is a big company and there will be a company within it which will always be saying, you've got to do more, you've got to do more, Mm. you've got to do more. And what it will do is it will begin gradually over 10, 20, 30 years to change the host business. And that is exactly what's happened to Unilever. Unilever hasn't always got it right, and I'm sure there are complaints of any multinational but but you can see that it's shame. Mm. I mean, I meet people from Unilever and they talk about the social bottom line. So it's good for business and it's good for long-term sustainability of our planet. And I think that's brilliant. 
And finally, catching up with your story, in 2015, you were made a lifetime peer of the House of Lords. That must have been quite a moment for you, because I read that in the 1970s, you actually worked as a dishwasher in the Houses of Parliament canteen. Um, I think most people assume that the House of Lords is made up of a certain type of person and isn't actually hugely in touch with the day to day. Um, But this isn't the case. And there's lots of inspiring people that have been made Lords and baronesses. I love the line that you gave in your maiden speech. Could you tell us that line now? People often ask me how I got into the House of Lords and I say by lying, cheating and stealing. And the point (laughs) I was trying to make was that because I was a lying, cheating thief, I was always being lifted by the police. And every time I got lifted, uh, I put away nicked, I learned something else. I learned how to print I learned a bit of scaffolding. I learned a bit of gardening. So all the skills that I learned to read and write. So unfortunately, my brothers were left behind because they just had, you know, comprehensive or secondary modern school, which wasn't very good. So because I I got the opportunity of being educated, uh, I went to art school when I came out of uh, reformatory. I was only there a year until I got into trouble more. But the thing was, I learned an enormous amount. But the thing was, when I went into the House of Lords, I went there because of the advantages of the prison system. Unfortunately, the point I was trying to make is now we take our young people and we warehouse them. I spoke at an event of 150 wardens and chief wardens of prisons a few years before. And I asked these 150 people at this conference, how many of them had rehabilitation in the top 10 of their list? Not one of them. My gosh. Uh, uh, So I said, so all right then, what is it? And they all said, look, so a good day to us is if we get through without any incident. And that's where all of our effort and our budget goes. Occasionally you would meet a a chief prison officer or or a, a warden I went to a prison last year. I was astonished. They had an arts festival. It was absolutely brilliant. I met these people who were given the chance of culture and creativity to do their own writing, their own art. It was phenomenal. But most prisons and most institutions that look after our young don't have that same commitment. Now, the reason they don't have that commitment was I was in prison when I was in the prison system, when it was a quarter of the size it is now, Mm. people believed in a kind of spend-to-save argument. You invest in your young to get them out of the sticky stuff, and then they'll turn out right in the end. We don't do that now. We warehouse them. And is that what you are using your position in the House of Lords, one of the things that you're trying to do to change, to, to highlight... Um, your own experience? I do talk about um, the prison system, the custodial system. But to me, the custodial system is the almost the end of a failed line. So you've got to go further upstream. Okay. 35% of our children have feel, failed at school. Where do those 35% end up? They end up in the prisons. I, I, what I'm interested in is preventing the next generation of little Johnny Birds, the next generation of big issue vendors. I I want to prevent poverty from happening. If we fail 35% of our kids, we are creating systemically, systematically, the next generation of people in poverty. And here is the big, big thing. This is, I take a businessman's attitude. I'm a business response to a social crisis. I'm not a kind of lovey-dovey, bleeding-heart liberal. And I say, why is it that if you sit in the House of Lords or the House of Commons, 70% of your business that we go through is nearly always about the problems created by poverty, problems created by that underinvestment in those 35 percent of our children so the sums don't add up Mm. and if anybody if anybody got hold of the british government or the uk government and got hold of it and by the scrap of the neck and said from now on 
you're going to have to be businesslike. And the first thing you're going to have to do is stop wasting your money, stop bolting the, the stable door after the horse has run away. Oh, yes. Well, I'm bloody glad you're there saying the things that you've said today. I end all my interviews with the analogy that running your business is like being on an epic roller coaster. Can you tell me what has been one of your biggest lows? I think one of my biggest lows in business was when um, um, I had to go to the funerals of people I'd worked with. That was terrible. When you were giving people an opportunity of making money, when you were beginning to sort their lives out, I mean, I challenged a particular guy's drunk, you know, he was an ex-soldier, Scottish guy, and he, uh, he was a drunk. So we got him some help, and they got him off the drink, but he went in the drugs. And then he did an overdose dose and died. And it was, I, I don't think I'd ever, I thought, I want to give this up. Mm. Uh, so it wasn't to do with business, but it was to do yeah. with that. Yeah. Some of the highs, the, the, one of the greatest highs was meeting Sabrina. When I saw her and then go onto the stage and talk to people who were listening to her, who would pass through the prism of the big issue, not the prism of neglect. That's, oh, that was, yeah. that was a brilliant thing. I can only imagine. And having met her myself, she is quite a magical person. Um, and before we get onto your letter, one person that you think I could speak to on this podcast that's inspired you within your business journey? Uh, well, another Lord, actually, Lord Victor Adabawali. He ran Turning Point. He's one of the reasons I'm in the house because he said to me, he's a northern guy. His family come from Nigeria, but you wouldn't believe it. And he's a northern guy. He's a big guy. And he, he talks like that. And he, he, he don't like mucking about. And he says, John Bird, you should be in the House of Lords. He was one of the first ones to apply because you have to apply to be a crossbencher. And he's, he's one of the most formidable thinkers around how do you dismantle poverty through business. I've oh, ever met. gosh, that's what a great recommendation. Thank you, Lord John Bird. Um, you are epic. Your story is epic. What you've achieved is unbelievable. Um, from where you've come from to where you are today, we're talking in the most crazy of circumstances um, in lockdown. Um, and I just want to say on behalf of all of us who are listening um, and myself, a huge congratulations on being just a really, really lovely guy and someone who's really inspired me um, as a businesswoman. My family hate me. My five children, they run away. My neighbours don't like me. I get on the bus and everybody gets off. No, I agree with you. But, you know, the, can I just tell you, one of the things is that I am really proud of is I've gone from poverty to purpose. Mm. And we need more and more people who are in poverty to give them the chance to have a purposeful life. Because if you take people in poverty and you can get them out, they're going to be more useful than if they hadn't been in the first instance. So, John, what an interview. Thank you so much for your time. It's that time of the podcast where I hand over to you to read a letter to your younger self. Now, I don't know what you're going to say, but on behalf of myself and all those listening, thank you for sharing a part of your soul with us today. Thank you very much indeed. I've, I've greatly enjoyed it. My problem is that when I was 16, I used to talk like that, you know. But now I'm very, very posh. So the problem is, what do I do? Read it posh? Or do I read it, you know, like a kind of ruffian from Consider Yourself, well in Consider Yourself, part of the furniture. You know, Oliver. Anyway, so <laughs> I, 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 love it I, I look forward to which one you choose. I think I'd better try a neutral one. Um, all right, then. The advice I would give my younger self is don't get caught. There I was, age 16, in an institution. I hated all institutions and the forced company with boys. I hated boys. I hated their lives, their smells, their preoccupations. I loved girls so much that I grieved, not because I'd done wrong, but because I'd put myself 
out of the way of girls. I also didn't like boys because they were bullies and cowardly and they would gang up on one another or they would hit the smaller boys. There was never any equality between them. I got beaten up at times because I'd stand up against bullying, but eventually I got my own back by becoming stronger or befriending even bigger boys. Some spectacular revenge attacks were orchestrated by me and another boy who was also to reject bullying. At 16, I was in a reformatory for three to five years for receiving money under false pretenses. I had also run away just before my 16th birthday and with another boy had stolen an Austin Healy Sprite and smashed it up while travelling at 87 miles per hour. The police had said it had been travelling at 102 miles an hour and I believed them until I met a car enthusiast who said at 87 miles per hour the steering wheel shaped uncontrollably and that I should pursue the police for compensation for their exaggeration. I was sent to Ashford Boys Prison. It was there over a few months that that changed my life. The prison officer understood that my reading skills were deficient and gave me a book. He asked me to underline all the words I didn't understand with a pencil. He was astonished by which words I knew and equally astonished by the silly little words, the ones which give the sentence its meaning that I didn't know. I came back to the reformatory with a reading ability that had leapt in a matter of weeks and all because I'd had the bravery to admit I could not understand what I was reading. I was most fortunate at being brought before Baroness Wooten, who'd given me sentences since I was 10 for crimes like shoplifting, housebreaking, truancy and stealing bikes. I came back reading ferociously and I'd been reading rather than pretending to read ever since. But at 16, I was anticipating at least a few more years of incarceration and the company of boys and their slimy, small-minded ways. What could I do? I decided to become a painter, not a painter and decorator. I would draw and paint and keep myself away from knobheads who wanted to talk about girls as pieces of flesh, fast cars, football, and all that macho shit. And I would fight and stand up for the rights of the weak against this murderous little society of bullies. Needless to say, I received more kickings than I gave out. But being a knight in shining armour seemed something worth striving for. I was also inspired by being a devout Catholic. Jesus was everywhere in my life. I was going to be a painter-priest like Piero della Francesca, one of the great painters who ever lifted a brush. My advice to the young, young John Bird would be not only to not get caught, but not to do wrong in the first place, so he'd have no reason to fear the long arm of the law or those horrible, smelly, fart-drenched boys' institution where boys wanted to have boasting or wanking competitions. Forgive me. It's all, I'd also tell my younger self to try not to be eaten up by hatred for his fellow man. Don't do wrong and live to regret it and try and stop fighting people for the sake of it and keep those brushes moving. You can only become the genius you think you are through application. The other advice I'd have loved to drop into my ear of my younger self would be that my mother wasn't going to make it long in life. She died was when I was in my early 20s, and that was the greatest of reversals possible in the whole of my life. Even now, when people complain to me about how they are burdened with their mums and dads, I recoil. I often wish that I still had parents to tell me what a muck-up I'd made of my life or give me advice that I think is dead wrong. My disdain for men lifted when I had boys myself. I would have loved to have said to my younger self that there's deep in all of us, but you sometimes have to dig deep, even among boys, 
goodness. I would also tell my younger self that it would be women who would make John Bird into something bigger than the sum total of his mistakes. My three wives who civilised me and my mother-in-laws who treated me even-handedly and possibly Anita Roddick who created the peppermint foot lotion revolution with the body shop that helped me and her husband Gordon to make the big issue a reality. To sum up, I tell my younger self, you're going places in the company of many for no man or woman is truly an island. At the same time, I'd love to say to myself, stop trying to be a guide and an atlas to everybody. Only now do I realise that people have truly to embrace their own skills and abilities and not keep waiting for the next Mother Teresa of Fulham Broadway to lead them out of the swamp. Oh, John, I just, I've, I've never heard a letter like it. And um, I, I've never read a better letter. Sorry. I've never <laughs> read it, read it. <laughs> this whole interview, you've had me in stitches and, and fa- actually found that really emotional. Um, but, but because I'm looking at you, I, I can't cry, but, but just say how bloody wonderful you are. Bloody wonderful. And, not only are you inspiring me as a woman in my in, in my world and in business, but you're inspiring everyone that's listening to this. And that actually doesn't matter where you started. It doesn't matter on your journey. If you can dream it and go for it and believe in yourself and think you are God's gift, then this is what you can do. And you're a shining example. And God bless you for being you. Thank you. And I would just like to say that, I have never, ever met a person who could not be improved by just stopping and saying to themselves, what have I got going for me? What have I got going against me? And then try and push one up and push one down. Sometimes people actually push the wrong one down because they start with a lot and they end up with nothing. And there are others who start with nothing and end up with a lot. And I think that's one of the things that I've always tried to preach. Thank you very much. God bless you. Before you go, don't forget, if you want to be in a chance to win a 90-minute mentoring session with me, all you need to do is sign up to NatWest Business Builder, which is packed full of videos and advice, all with the aim to help you build your business and arm you with all the tools you need. To find out more, head over to natwestbusinesshub.com forward slash Holly Tucker. Your support really means the world to me and it really does help spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown You will find that all the things that I have said Will come to when you are lying in your bed And if you want your friends to come